Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing outstanding, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. I'm so glad you're here with me. So before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society. The University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. So today we have a really special topic for you with some incredible guests. This topic is near and dear to all of us, and it's how we all got started. We're talking about education, specifically resident fellow education in sports medicine, shoulder surgery, and orthopedics in general. And we have a, a bunch of great guests for you. So first we've got um, Dr. Wes Philemtikuko. Am I pronouncing that correct, Wes? You're going to have to help me. I'm so sorry. Uh, it's not close, but I don't. It's pipitanical. Oh, you, one more time. Pipitanical. Pipitanical. Yeah. Dr. West Pipitanical, professor of orthopedic surgery, shoulder surgery guru, residency program director at Loma Linda in Loma Linda, California. West, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hey, hey, Pete. He also goes by Your Highness. So, West, <laughs> uh, just in case you can't say, you know, Dr. P or Wes, Your Highness works. I know it was the well, emperor, yeah. the evil emperor. <laughs> I, I feel like I should mispronounce everyone else's name now so you'll feel more comfortable. So we have Dr. Jonathan. It's Is it Birlo? Close enough. Bullard? Okay. <laughs> Dr. Enough. Jonathan thanks, Barlow. Thanks for having me, Pete. Dr. Jonathan Barlow is the Associate Professor of Orthopedics, Shoulder and Elbow Trauma Expert, Residency Program Director at the Mayo Clinic, Minnesota. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, we have Dr. Nun Murthy, Chief Shoulder and Elbow at uh, MedStar Union in uh, Baltimore, also serves as Director for the Shoulder and Elbow Surgery Fellowship um, at the same location. Nun, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys and gals and everyone and Wes. What All right. All right. I, 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 I don't want <laughs> to right, so let's, let's start here with, I think, where a lot of people are thinking about, which is you know, residency education, it's evolved a little bit in the years preceding COVID. Certainly, COVID has forced us to make additional changes. Let's talk about where are we now? So, John, tell us about how things have changed at Mayo during the pandemic. Where are you now? Where were you before? Yeah, thanks, Pete. I think um, it's it's been a, a pretty seismic shift in terms of the way that we've educated people. And I think um, just like all things in in shoulder and elbow surgery, there's been a real pendulum swing. So my sense was, as we go back, and I took over as program director right before the um, right before the COVID pandemic uh, was taking over. And essentially what happened was we immediately switched everything to virtual. I think we noticed a few things about being virtual. Um, first, we were able to engage uh, with people in lots of different locations. So as travel still was kind of going on a little bit, or as travel started to pick back up, we were able to have people who were traveling continue to be engaged in meetings. We found that to be really um, pretty nice and effective. I think that there was a sense that uh, we could engage each other pretty well through that virtual environment. And um, we sort of marched through that. And even as COVID became a little less um, worrisome, I think we held on to a lot of those virtual engagements. It's my strong sense now that the in-person human interactions have come back uh, for us. And we've recognized some of the power of, in particular, sort of flipped classrooms and discussions um, that are in-person. So we've now gone back to mostly in-person 
with intermittent um, virtual options. So I think now we're living in a hybrid world that allows us hopefully the best of both worlds. Everybody who's physically on campus can be there. People can chime in from a distance. We obviously have lots of faculty who travel to meetings and otherwise. And, you know, on any given weekend or week, you might have a few people out. So it's increased our ability to have those people engaged, those faculty engaged through conferences and otherwise. Um, so I think that that hybrid model is here to stay. The other thing that I would say or just comment on is that it's dramatically and fundamentally changed our idea of recruitment, which has gone to essentially all virtual for a while. This year is the first year where there's discussion about in-person return. Um, we had away rotations this summer, which I really think is important. And there's discussion about in-person return. I think now um, COVID has lessened, but some of the virtual things have, have stayed and there's discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the ability to travel and things like that, that we're, that we're kind of grappling with to figure out the right way to do that. Um, so that's the one of the other vestiges that has really remained in the post-COVID wake. What about U.S.? Has your experience been in Loma Linda with the same transition? Well, we actually wanted to go back to in-person sooner because we kind of felt like the educational value was better because, you know, one thing, and I don't mean that is when you're on Zoom, it's harder for people to be engaged and to interact. And one of the things when we were doing Zoom, and I feel like an old guy, and Peter has a uh, camera problem, so people can't see this on the podcast, but I would like, you got to turn your screens on at least, residents. You, you can't have 25 black screens because, you know, we don't even know if you're there. Uh, so I, I am a fan of the in-person just because of that human interaction. I think it's better didactics, but to John's point, you know, the hybrid having a ability for people who are out of town to have that kind of option. And I think with interviewing, we're still doing virtual and I like meeting people and shaking their hand and, and that kind of stuff. But I think with cost and logistics, I think the virtual interview is, is here to stay. Well, I think I think I absolutely deserve the comment about my camera after after how I butchered your name. So I, that's totally fair. Totally fair. So tell us, Anon, how has this played out in your fellowship? You know, we we have uh, thanks, Peter. We have both uh, a small residency program in our fellowship. The fellowship uh, wasn't affected too much negatively by the virtual versus in person. You know, our in person fellowship training was was similar hadn't changed the i'll throw in an advantage of the virtual component is that during covid and we've kept it is that we've been able to do some multi-center education so we have educational meetings with rothman or with another center and we'll have wednesday meetings and and do that which you wouldn't have without kind of that zoom technology or whatever platform you're using I agree on the virtual interviewing side for fellows. Um, I think the cost savings was incredible. I think for residency where you're gonna be there five or six years, it's good to meet them in person. And I'm glad we had um, the rotators on site this year, which makes a huge difference, I think. But I think for the one-year fellowship, the cost savings, the time not away from your residency program, which is tough when you gotta interview at like you know, 10 to 15 places, has been good, but um, it's been good and bad on the virtual training side. 
Let me ask you guys, while we're on the topic of interviews and, and kind of getting to the educational process once they get in for residency or fellowship, um, this is going to be more for both Wes and John. Can you tell us about signaling and what this means? Many of our listeners are current residents or early career surgeons who didn't go through this. And I think it's curious in terms of how the interview process works, how the application process works. It's confusing even for many of our faculty. Many of our faculty at CU don't really know what this means. And as students rotate through, they ask you for advice on signaling. So give us a a bird's eye view. What is signaling? When did it start? What do you think about it as program directors? And is this here to stay? Wes, let's start with you on this one. So I'm relatively new to this. And from my understanding, this signaling, at least this is the first year that I've been aware of it. John, this is not something that was in years past. So what it is, is each uh, candidate has 30 signals that they can do. And orthopedics as a field has more signals because we are a competitive specialty. So you can tell 30 programs or signal them that you are on their interests list. And so the program knows like if Rachel applies to Loma Linda and signals Loma Linda, we know that you used one of our one of your 30 signals to us and are expressing an interest. And so that's kind of how it works. It's a the program knows that you have used one of your markers, I guess, or chips uh, on that program. John, anything to add with your perspective on signaling and and how you advise students on this? how you advise faculty, do faculty even know if a student has ranked or signaled your program or how does this work from your perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's going to be a a real benefit to applicants. So a little bit of ground ground rules. Last year, there was a relatively high unmatch rate, something like 40, 40 something percent, depending on your background. I think all of us as program directors recognized some outstanding students who didn't match. That was a big surprise. So there was a little bit of something that was happening that um, maybe showed us some something was unusual. Some parts of that include if you have an, a virtual interview, uh, students can take all the interviews that they want. So there were, quote unquote, big fish who could take 50 interviews, for instance. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the, well, it'll be interesting to see what the max number was, but they could take two interviews in a day, four interviews in a weekend, something like that, depending on timing. So what that left is that a lot of people didn't come off the wait list or otherwise where they used to have to make decisions about in-person interviews. So they didn't come off wait list. So then there's this tier of resident of applicants who was pretty good, who um, maybe didn't um, push themselves or, or uh, strongly enough in certain locations and didn't match. We had somebody who was about three spots away from matching with us who went unmatched. So almost matched with us and went totally unmatched in the country, really good applicant. So what signaling is hoping to do is allow students to tell places where they're really interested in and give them a better shot at that, at that location rather than a broad thing where we're trying to judge where we think people might want to go or might not want to go. And so we have 30 signals. The most uh, other programs have three to five. So the difference between other programs, if you've got a signal in a small signal specialty, three or five, it's really meaningful to get a signal. But the absence of a signal is not meaningful. With 30, the absence of a signal is pretty substantial. You're saying 
this program's not in my top 30 programs that I'm most interested in. So I think the absence of a signal will be judged much more strongly than um, otherwise. The second part that I would say is we still have the strong signal, which is where you do your away rotations. So that you get two or three. So that's your real, that's your strong signal. This is a secondary uh, sort of a weak signal. And I think it's a really nice system to do it. And I would tell you that I think most people will probably use that to choose who gets interviews. But for us, um, we'll use that as one of our screening tools. It's not the it's not a yes no um, question. So we'll we're certainly interviewing some people who didn't signal us this year. Um, but uh, once they get an interview, from my perspective, faculty will not know if they signaled us or not. I think if they get an interview and they accept the interview, we're considering them sort of through the doors, and then I want them judged uh, holistically on the on the candidate that they are, not their signal. And, you know, I think John brought up a very important part and maybe for discussion about perhaps an unintended consequence of the virtual interview. Because, like, in the old days, you couldn't interview in New York and L.A. the same day. And so I can't help but wonder, I mean, that unmatched rate was so high last year. And so I think the, you know, the orthopedic directors, council and stuff is probably going to look at that. Is there... Should there be some tweaks to how many interviews one person can do? Because a lot of good candidates, you know, if you do 40 or 50 interviews, that's an interview. You, you're not going to rank 40 or 50. And that's someone else doesn't get that spot to interview. Anand, let me ask you, do you ever see this happening from a fellowship perspective? You know, certainly the match rates for shoulder and elbow fellowships, sports medicine, really all fellowships nowhere near the the challenges that orthopedic residency saw last year with such a, a high unmatched rate. But that being said, when you get to the fellowship decision, you really do want to get to your first, second, third choice, ideally your first choice. You're picking that year for your mentors to shape the rest of your life, the rest of your career. Um, do you see something like this happening from a fellowship matching perspective, particularly in light of the last couple of years with COVID? Or do you see this continuing with the traditional match that we already have? I think our match is pretty good, but I, I understand your question in that, you know, when you get to, you know, shoulder and elbow, we have 40 some spots. It's much smaller, obviously, than, than the residency program match. And it would be good to be able to kind of match people who want to be in your program that also that program offers what that fellow wants, you know, and I think uh, something like the signaling process would, would help that, you know, there are, there are fellows who have geographic reasons or specialty reasons, or they're trying to um, kind of build part of their portfolio. And, and this fellowship offers that, whereas this one doesn't. And so uh, I think that would be definitely a good way to do it. Um, we're, you know, we had a lull where a lot of people where we weren't filling spots and now we have more applicants than spots, which is a great thing for shoulder and elbow. Um, so I think it's going to continue to progress and we're opening more fellowship spots too. I know, Peter and Bob at Utah have a new fellowship, and there are a couple more that have come on online this year as well. So uh, I think the more that you can make it advantageous on both sides, the better for everyone. And some of the match is a little archaic, in my opinion. As, a, as an aside, uh, as an un, um, uninvited aside, but Anand brought up the point, which I really agree with, which is um, fellowships are, and this is an unpopular opinion, but... Um, 
Fellowships are pushing to go back to in-person. It's my suspicion or it's my sense that fellowships should stay virtual. Um, I think residents know the players. They know the places that they want to go. They have a good sense of who they are by the time they're in their fourth year. They're going to go for a year. I recognize that fellowship directors feel like they can sell their fellowships better, but they've got a lot of information that they can make really good decisions on. A lot of these med students are coming from smaller programs. They don't have a home program. They know, don't know who the players are. They're at a different time in their life and they're spending five years. And the secondary part is what they're missing fourth year to travel is very minimal in medical school. What they're missing from their senior trauma rotations, from their you know, adult recon, shoulder and elbow sports rotations in residency to go do travel for a couple months in the, in the early part of their uh, middle part of their fourth year is substantially more valuable and irreplaceable. So it's just a plug for people to think about because I'm all for in-person interviews. I'm a strong, strong advocate for in-person interviews, but I think fellowships may consider if that's the right thing for them and if it makes a big enough difference in the long run. Yeah, we're doing virtual. I, I mean, we really add up the cost and the time away and the burden to your co-residents who are covering as well. And like you said, the educational loss of you know, 10 weekends or how many weekends or days away, you know, it's tremendous. Well, it's funny as another uninvited comment, I'll comment on this because we had a major debate on this at the AOSSM meeting for sports med fellowship interviews. And some places are not allowed to do in-person interviews for, through their state or school uh, right, regulations right. due to COVID. And some other states don't have such regulations. So then the question becomes, is it an even playing field? If some places offer virtual only because they have to, if some places offer a hybrid because they can, or if some places say we're only doing in-person. I'll tell you guys, the general sentiment of the sports med fellowship directors and associate program directors was that in-person is the way to go simply to sell the program. So for example, in Colorado, when we have a winter interview slot, bringing them out, barring horrendous weather situation is super attractive because the fellows can see the mountains with the snow. They're typically coming out here because they enjoy winter sports in addition to ideally getting a great fellowship education. So it's a huge selling point uh, versus going to my hometown, Chicago in the winter is, is maybe not a huge selling point. Um, just from a, a horrendous wind and cold perspective. And so there's there's certainly advantages and disadvantages. And I hear 100%, John, what you're saying, but I, I, I just am telling you the general sentiment amongst the sports directors was in person's the way to go. And um, I think this will be an interesting thing to look at in, over the next five years in terms of surveying fellows, figuring out did they end up going where they wanted to go? Did it make a difference in the long run? Cost is for sure a concern. Burden to the residents is for sure a concern. So lots of different perspectives. I think the other piece to think about here is that, you know, when you go into a fellowship, you're joining a much smaller field. And part of the opportunity you have as a fellow is to go meet all the people. In that, I mean, I remember it being this great opportunity to go meet like all the best. I mean, think about it, Rachel. Like all of their, you think they're coming to go skiing. They're, they're coming to meet their famous Dr. Rachel Frank and be like, so that one day they'd be like, I remember when I met her on my fellowship interview. It was such a memorable conversation I had with her. Let me ask you this. And I think this is the, the real, this to me gets the crux of the future. You know, you brought up, John, we're taking our fourth years away from their trauma rotations or their joints rotations. So here's the question I would posit to this group. Should fourth years that are going into shoulder and elbow be doing all these different rotations? 
Or should we, and you and I have talked about this before, be putting people into tracks earlier in their fellowship or in their residency education? Like, should we have people decide as second or third years, hey, maybe I'm going to go into sports, so maybe I don't need to do another 12 weeks of spine. So what are your thoughts, Anand? Is, are we doing it right now or so, should we be changing there it? Was, uh, there was a big push, and I don't know if there still is a few years ago, for spine to be its own residency, you know? I remember when Dan Rue at WashU, and I can understand that, you know, you do a year of general and then you do three years of spine, you know, if you're just going to be a spine surgeon, you're not taking trauma call, you're not doing sports, you're not doing general orthopedics. I think for shoulder and elbow, there are a lot of tools you learn from doing trauma. There's a lot of tools you do from learning arthroscopy of other joints, um, you know, hand nerve reconstruction, things like that, that just teach you to be facile. And just the ability to work your diagnostic skills and work your brain. I think uh, just doing shoulder and elbow for, you know, how many years may be too much. Maybe that's just my old school opinion. Wes? What do you, what do you think, on, Wes, Wes? you could do this, would you Back do it? me up, baby. Okay. I, you think, I, you know where I'm headed with. There's balance, right? We talk about there's a balance to the force. That's what Master Yoda taught us. And I knew, I knew it. Other, somewhere my, you were going to bring out the force. And, and my other mentor is Mr. Miyagi. You know, he talked about learning balance, right? The, and things like that. So, it, yeah, there is a there is a delicate balance where, you know, I, I do like. Wes, some, you know these these people are fictional characters, right? What you know that right? <laughs> I talk to Miyagi and Yoda every night in my bed before I go to bed. <laughs> They call them force. I don't need to. I don't need to know that. I did not need to know that. Yoda's not really can't hurt you. <laughs> so what, John, what, what do you your, think? What are your thoughts on this, John? Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, John? I'm new school on this, and uh, I'm I'm hoping nobody from the ABOS or ACGME is listening because obviously my my job as a program director is to train people to be balanced general orthopedic surgeons who can do spine, hand, peds, shoulder. Uh, foot, um, joints, etc. And um, yet no one does that anymore. So I think it's a little bit, here's, here's a couple of my thoughts. I think certainly there's balance, certainly there's benefit to learning a few different things. Um, my sense would be advantages of slightly earlier subspecialization would be, first of all, most people decide what they want to do, they have to decide for fellowship match by the beginning of their fourth year. So they know by the beginning of their fourth year what they're going to do. Then, And it depends a little bit on the program what you can do with that information. Because if you have six people who do spine out of a six-person residency, you're a little bit stuck at that point. But at that point, you could sort of point them down a pathway where, for instance, or as they start to make their decision, they can do their quote-unquote generals as a third year and then become more and more specialized as a four and a five. So sort of specializing slowly as they get closer, which I think most of us like to do in our programs anyway, through electives and otherwise. The biggest advantage of that first, when we designed a five-year residency program, basically there were, I don't know, there were 15 operations that are done. Now we've got 37 AC joint operations and 27 <laughs> biceps operations. So I think the, the field has just exploded and expectations for knowledge and skills and expertise in subspecialty areas has, has exploded. The second part is, and this is a little bit of a biased opinion, but I think that we create a false sense because we say, well, everybody should be able to do all of these things. 
and we create people who are underqualified to do certain things. For us, total shoulder replacement. So people come out, they said, well, I worked with Dr. Murthy as a five for two months. I can do, you know, total shoulder replacement. I'm a generalist. That's a generalist procedure. I think most people who do total shoulder say there's a lot of nuance and subtlety. And unless you do some in fellowship and you do a relatively high volume, you're going to have a higher complication rate. So if the last time you did it was as a two or as a three, you're going to be much less likely to then say, well, I feel confident when I go out in doing some of those things. You'd have to be creative. We have lots of our residents go to um, do mission work in Africa. They go and do general practice in northern Minnesota and South Dakota. I think you can make tracks for that too, right? You can make a general track. So I think there would be advantages to that. And it would also stop some of this sense in some places where they say, well, I want the fives to be on spine so that they can expose in the next room. And there's a little bit of educational abuse that that goes into using the expertise to the program or the or the faculty's best interest. And it, you could narrow that a little bit more. But I think it is a, up to balance. But I think we can drive subspecialization a little bit more that way and, and accept that um, as a reasonable compromise. All right, let me ask you guys, speaking of training and what people might be competent or feel competent to do versus not competent to do, as a result of their training, especially as they get out early into practice, we are in an era. And I really think this started, I think a lot about this with this whole millennial debate versus generation, this generation, that I think when high schoolers started using cell phones and probably now middle schoolers started using cell phones, a new wave of learning education and teaching started to happen. And that's due to instant gratification. So learners now have their mobile device, whatever it's, whatever it is, their watch, their phone, their tablet, their computer, whatever. And they get information 24 seven. All they have to do is Google. In fact, when they're on call, they don't have to tell me about a fracture anymore. They can just text me a picture. They don't have to say anything. And they find that easier. And I would argue that many attendings also find it easier because they don't have to listen to an, a resident or fellow ramble on about angulation and this and that. They can just look at the picture and decide for themselves. Obviously, that creates problems for surgeons because in surgery, we have to do decision making on the fly. Uh, patients don't present like textbooks. Anatomy is not always like Netters said it should be. There's complications, there's blood pressure, there's bleeding, there's aberrant vessels, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. So, in this era of education, how do we teach residents and fellows to become competent surgeons? knowing that their first knee-jerk reflex, and this is of no fault to them, this is how they've been brought up in this generation, is if they don't know an answer to a question, to Google it or to use whatever search engine they want or to, to somehow instantly get the answer. Whereas I would argue that 5, 10, 20 years ago, more memorization was required and critical thinking because we didn't have, and I say we generously because I was kind of part of this new era of education, of, of instant gratification with phones and whatnot, um, but we didn't necessarily have that ability to get the answer immediately. And so we had to memorize or face the consequences during fracture conference or in an OR heavy pimp fest question session. So what, what do we do now? What do we do with these learners um, when their way of learning is different from probably all of your way of learning when you were residents and fellows? And then let's start with you. What are your thoughts here? So, you know, we've done a lot of work in this. There's a lot of, bit, a lot of research done on education on the change of the amount of attention span 
current fellows and residents have. And so in the last 10 years, when we do programmatic changes for our conferences and our meetings, we run a couple regional meetings, it has gone from didactics to now all case-based interactive modeling. So, you know, if I am planning on a discussion on shoulder arthroplasty, so it'll all be case-based. Then we go to the lab, we do the dissection, we do the implant. And I think that helps, you know, the trainees now, whether it's a two or a five or a fellow, to really kind of get their their hands on as well as be really attentive and engaged. And I think utilizing platforms, I think ortho bullets, things like that are, are really the way of the future. I think, um, you know, once again, things like the academy and didactics and being t taught at versus taught with is going to change. I, so I would, oh, go ahead, John. No, I was going to say I would back that up. I think in part of their, uh, I think now there's as much problem with editing as anything else. I mean, it used to be you could look at one textbook and you'd kind of have a pretty good sense. And now you've got, there's almost so much information. It's hard for people to know kind of what to hone in on. But speaking to what Anand said in terms of the educational theory. So for anybody who likes educational theory, there's a book called Make It Stick, which really talks a lot about learning and how we learn and make it happen. And it seems like the harder the learning is, the better it works. So if you show a case and you ask a resident questions about it, um, they're, and they don't know it and they get corrected and they have to work through it, that seems to stick more, be, be more sticky memory. Then if you just tell them, hey, this is the percentage risk of 80% of rotator cuff get better with exercises, you sort of work them through it. And that's this idea of kind of flipped curriculum, which I think we're all going to move to. And I think that's been probably aided by some of these resources and by um, our trainees pushing us to be thoughtful about that. Flipped curriculum says, give us, give people some resources to look at. And then once you get in there, you're just going to talk about controversies and challenges. You're not going to spend 27 uh, slides talking about the anatomy of the AC joint. You're going to go through cases and talk about how you're going to take care of it. So I think that there's been some benefit through that. And um, and we just have to figure out how to modify it without losing the essence of of the actual learning process um, because it's, it's here to stay. They're going to keep kind of doing it that way. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a balance. If, if you look at... Like the, um, so one, if you look at um, the Khan Academy, which has kind of changed in the way some of young students learn, you know, they do the studying at home and then they do the work at school. So, you know, we kind of give them their didactic uh, curriculum. That's at home. That's home learning. And then when you come to your, you know, your learning session, your, you know, your di quote didactic lectures or whatever, that's when you work through problem solving and cases and um, how to get out of trouble, which is what you really need to know in the OR. Wes, let me ask you something. So with this in mind, obviously the three of you here are passionate educators. That's that's part of your job and, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You enjoy education, you get these roles with training and education, and in turn, your residents and fellows learn from you and then ideally they'll become educators, et cetera, et cetera. In 2022, life for faculty, in particular academic faculty, has evolved a little bit in many institutions where it's more production-based than anything else. And so faculty are motivated to kind of be more like private practice docs, get as much done as they can because their salary depends on it. 
So with flipped classrooms or more interactive education, more time in the lab, case discussions, it puts a little bit of a different burden on the faculty. The faculty can't just give the same didactic that they've given for the last several years and, and expect the learners to stay engaged and be effective. How do you motivate your faculty to do this? Because if you if you don't, then you're going to end up doing all of the lectures, right? In the leadership role, if something if someone doesn't get it done or gets a bad review, it's going to be on you to find someone new or do it yourself. So how do you motivate your faculty to buy into this new wave of education, do a good job, put the time into it, especially if they're they're really not getting paid to do it. It's it's potentially they're losing money to do it if they're taking time away from their clinical productivity. Well, that's that's a really tough question because as we know, and it's not just keeping it real, it takes longer to teach a resident or a fellow to do the case than do it yourself. And it's it's significant. And I think how many of us have seen Top Gun Maverick? And I try to tell residents sometimes, hey, if sometimes if you just watch someone do it, just like Tom Cruise went in there, you know, in two minutes and 15 seconds and did the course and for you to see that it can be done in this time frame. So I think there's value to that, but it's kind of hard because the culture is, well, if I'm not cutting, I'm not learning or I'm not, I'm watching, I'm not doing. So it's such a, once again, that tricky balance again of, of what, what you're mentioning. I think something that you brought up earlier too, about the lost art of describing a fracture. And I think that's, I feel like communication, I mean, phones are great and it helps us uh, communicate, but sometimes I think the verbal, the ability to have a conversation like we're doing, I feel like that, that is becoming a lost, like the Jedi arts again, to bring up star Wars that I had a trouble with it before, because I was like, now we're not teaching guys how to describe a fracture. But I've kind of, as technology evolved, kind of said, well, if we have technology that makes it so we don't have to, I guess it's okay. And a picture is worth a thousand words. So I have, you know, adapted to not to be a dinosaur. But these are all the struggles, I think, as educators that we're facing because the world is changing. One of, one of the ways that I think the world is changing, and I think this really plays into what you said, said on, Anand. You said, Anand, you know, we've shifted from didactics to case-based, and surely we've seen that everywhere. And yet some of our most important milestones continue to be standardized tests. And standardized tests, even if we make them case-based, they're still ultimately often based on, do you have this one nugget of knowledge that the question is asking about? So how do we, how do we in 2022 make our education appropriate both for that because ultimately all of our residents have to pass those tests and then also make our education appropriate for you know our changing paradigms what what are your thoughts john it's a good question i think um certainly we're being faced with uh, a lack of un of uh, so step one is going to pass fail step two will probably at some point follow suit is the signaling that I understand and potentially become pass fail. So the move away from standardized testing, I think um, we can have our opinions about it, but the only reason that I care about their step one and step two scores is because they're going to have to take a standardized test at the end of their residency training program. If we had a supplement that could understand their medical knowledge in a better way at that point, I think that would be great. Um, I think the step 
two, where they have to present their cases and show what they're doing is a dramatically better test of what kind of orthopedic surgeon they're going to be. So um, I'm not in the decision-making suite of ABOS and ACGME, but I could I could see myself saying we're going to do away with a written test at the end of of residency and just go to a actual seeing actually seeing what kind of surgery you do and how you can present your cases in doing that. It's a totally separate um, part of their brain that's being used. Some of our best residents have been low step two people, step one people, and relatively low OITE people, and they're exceptional residents. So I don't think it's one to one. And the other way is for sure true. Really high OITE people can be very ineffective in terms of actually taking care of people. So um, unless we show that the way that they do their steps is, and the, you know, that the way that they pass their ABOS step one correlates any better with their actual skills, I could see us just going away from that entirely. I think we've got better things um, that we could use instead of that. The hard part is, objectively following these people and this is another big residency topic is competency-based education versus you know time-based education and we're all time-based um, because it's easier but um, if we could become more objective about really assessing how people are and not just moving them along that would be in incredibly helpful and and probably better than i think i don't know anybody who says oh i don't care how that person performs i just care about their oite score they just care how they see patients and do surgery and follow them and call them and and that side. My, that's, that's my that's thought. It's funny you brought that up. We, we were talking with my fellow at lunch today. What is the best way to become a licensed certified orthopedist? It's taking these exams, right? Whereas I believe it's California or somewhere when you go into practice, you actually get monitored by an established physician who says, oh, you can do an ACDF, check mark. You can do a fusion, check mark. And maybe that's a good way to learn if you're doing diagnostics and, and surgery correct. But I think we definitely have to advance from, you know, this test tells me I'm a licensed physician. And my sense is internationally, it's not like finish residency, right. do it all alone. In most right. places, it's like finish, go work with a senior partner, they'll observe you and make sure you're safe. Right. And it's a little more right. of a mentorship model that way. Right. Yeah, I definitely observed that when I was on my traveling fellowship, especially in Europe, where faculty, they finished all their training. They are full-fledged orthopedic surgeons attending faculty, but they're essentially junior faculty, and they're doing the cases with the senior faculty for even five-plus years into practice, even though, at least on, on my naive view, they seem terrific and able to operate independently. And, and what do I know? But they seemed like that. And that's just the culture there. But I think in the U.S. with our Again, our financial driven practices, it's hard to, it's going to be hard to adopt that model of practice once you're done with training. So the biggest question is how do we train competent docs? You know, one, one question I have for you guys is as, and this is something I've been interested in for over a decade now, is the role of alternative educational strategies for residents and fellows, specifically simulation, AR training, et cetera. What role, if any, does this have in your program? Do you find it helpful? Is this not something you're doing? Um, and where do you see this going into the future? And, and lastly, do you see some sort of simulation-based competency exam versus an AR-based 
competency exam as part of board certification, as part of residency or fellowship graduation um, versus, you know, potentially observing on a, on a live patient. Because in the U.S., that might be a challenge from a litigation and, and just ethics perspective. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts on this. Um, Anand, let's start with you. Thanks. That's a good question. All of the ASCS fellowships now are working with Precision OS with uh, with HoloLens, or the, I don't want to use any proprietary, but, you know, lenses to train and do visual surgery, uh, approaches to the glenoid, approaches for humeral-sided replacement. I, you know, I think it's early still in its uh, development. I think, you know, the perfect scenario is, you know, you finish a uh, foot and ankle rotation or a sports rotation, and you can do an ACL virtually, you know, where, without having a patient endangered theoretically, and you can go through all the steps with your attending and check boxes uh, and then show that you've been able to complete those, whether it's trauma, you know, rod and a femur, things like that. And that kind of gets us around this high attendings having to do so much volume and not being able to go kind of s- slowly through a case. The other side of, of AR VR is that you can now watch Rachel Frank from Baltimore do a arthroscopic stabilization. I don't have to travel to Colorado to do that. Uh, we set up the system in your OR, and, and I think that saves time, that saves money, that saves cost. And that tech is actually getting better and better. And I think, uh, you know, we do that. I can have our fellow watch someone in, a, in another country or another city do an operation, and you get immediate feedback back and forth. And I think that's a great way for to kind of improve education also. Wes, what are your thoughts? Do you think we're going to be going to some sort of exam on a model as as basic as a, you know, and again, not to use proprietary names, but a sawbone model or a simulator model or doing something with the goggles? What Do you think we're going to have that in the next five to 10 years for residency, graduation, or for ABOS or whatever board certification we have, um, certification? Well, I mean, technology is here to stay. I think for certification i don't quite see that i think john brought up a great point about the part one boards if we're getting away from standardized for the students you know what are we doing about with orthopedics but technology is here to stay and so i think it's like anon's point about being able to watch you or somebody internationally that technology i think is important and i think it will continue to increase and help revolutionize what we're doing but I think for examining, I I don't think we're going to be there that soon. John, any thoughts on that? Or would you agree or any, any additional thoughts? I agree. I think the time horizon is going to be a little bit longer. We were early. We got a simulator early and had to go through the troubleshooting of using a, simu- a haptic simulator and breaking down and parts and stuff like that. So VR, AR is certainly dramatically better than that. I think the biggest thing that it can do is make learning more difficult, which is makes it more sticky. So if you you can't just read a book and say like, okay, I read that, I read that, I read that, and your brain's going through it, you have to say like, okay, I'm going to do this step next. You know, it sort of forces you to make decisions. So I think um, we're continuing to work on it. We have lots of access to cadavers, so we tend to still use that, but it's a costly, it's a costly, it's the best resource. And the question is, you know, in an 80-20 world, can you get 80% of the benefit with 20% of the cost? And I think we probably we probably can. So we're kind of expanding into that world slowly to figure out where it where it works best. Um, but I think 
it's a really nice idea for certification. It could be done in, in your own home within, you know, with a, with a device and you could force surgeons to go through those steps and talk, talk you through those things in a more meaningful way. I think, I think there's certainly opportunities. As we're getting close to the end of the podcast, I want to ask each of you, and you, you talked about this a little bit with competency-based training, can residency in 2022 be accomplished in less than five years? Yes or no? Anon? Yes. Wes? I think it can, but I'm not in favor of it. John? No. Okay, um, let me ask one more question. Does it need to be longer than five years? John, let's start with you. I think that it is unlikely in a competence. I, my sense is extending training has very rarely provided dramatically improved performance over time. So I'm just not sure that longer periods of time are more effective. So I like five. All right, Wes? Yeah, I'm a, I like the five. And Anon, how about you? Yeah, I don't think going longer will will improve anything. It's more about maximizing your five or four or three years of shoulder and elbow. Who knows? I also think that five five years is not the same for every person. I think it's what Anon. Right. The most important point there is that you know you as a resident you only get five years, so. You know, you got to figure out how to make the most of it, whatever your goals are. Like you have to get get about accomplishing them because it, it's over before you know it. It's not about. It's not the same in every program either. Some places you're doing hospital work, um, you know, for a while before you start to dig into ortho. Some of which is outside of our control, even. Let me ask you this, guys. So we've we've talked a lot about what we're doing right now, how to make it the best. What have we not covered that the future holds? You know, what what else is going to look different five years from now? So I'll, I'll maybe start. So I think the biggest thing that we can educate orthopedic surgeons about, from my perspective, is how to be exceptional um, community leaders and human beings. So we spend more and more time talking about that. I think we rarely, we rarely see through ASES or national academies people who just purely are technically incapable. But we certainly have lots of orthopedic surgeons nationally who are not leaders in their hospitals, in their communities. They're not doing the right thing, making good decisions. So we have thought and worked hard to try to help develop those sides of people, you know, how to interact with hospital leadership, how to interact with your partners, how to be a good citizen, how to share, you know, things that you're supposed to learn in kindergarten, but um, we're still all learning lessons on them. I agree with John. I think there's we've gotten so into the technical aspects of being an orthopedic surgeon that nowadays we need to work on communication, relationships. Rachel knows I'm big into mentoring. I think, uh, you know, some of that has been lost. Chief residents mentoring younger residents. They're so busy doing their own specialty. Uh, that's being lost a little bit. Uh, and I hope to see that improve in the next five years, five, ten years. What are your thoughts, Wes? What is the what does the future hold? I got kicked off. 
So I'm a little bit behind. I, it's been telling me maybe you should darken the camera like Peter because I guess I'm doing too much <laughs> Wi-Fi in the primitive West Coast here. You're you're sucking up all the Wi-Fi in California. <laughs> it, it, it kept saying you may want to turn your camera off. You're unsteady. I was ignoring it, and then it booted me. There's a rolling right, blackout in Loma Linda. There's a rolling blackout about to hit. <laughs> What's the next five, ten years hold hold for us in education, Wes? The next five to 10 years in education, man, that's a deep question. I think we're getting away from the, what we talked about, the standardized testing. I think that's, that's one thing that's, that's definitely happening. We're going to become more dependent on technology more and more, these phones and not talking like this. Maybe the next podcast is going to be a text podcast where people can <laughs> read the text. I know. We should do a text cast. That's a great idea. Oh, man. No, no. Wes is going to host <laughs> that one. He's going to host it. And uh, cameras will be on, but it'll be all text messages. Emojis Just and ESP. memes only. <laughs> Just ESP. Well, I want to thank all you guys for coming on. This has been awesome. You guys are a great group and provided incredible insights that I think all of our listeners find useful, especially those still in training trying to think about how could this experience have been better or more educational? So I appreciate all your guys' time. I hope you guys have a nice evening. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Rachel, Peter. Thanks thank for having us, team. Great job. I'll echo what Pete said. I want to thank all of you guys for coming on. For our listeners, not just for our, those in education, um, those who are going through education right now with respect to residency and fellowship, but for educators, for faculty, these are real issues. These are issues that... If we want to train good surgeons, we have to be in touch with how surgeons need to learn. We need to be in touch with the modernization of education. We need to be in touch with adult learners and how we can best make education stick with these with these young trainees. Um, so I, I, I'm thinking this, this is going to hit home for probably all of our listeners because we're all teachers at some point. We're all learners for lifelong. Um, and that really is all the time we have for today's podcast. Again, thank you so much to our three guests. You guys were incredible. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.